Give it up for those guys again. One more time. They work really hard for their beliefs. They work really hard for their beliefs, and uh, everything they do, they try to honor the Lord in doing it. And they always just have it on their back. Can everybody hear me? Am I loud enough? How's everybody doing today? Good. I wish not. Hey, so everybody says I look like Star Trek. <laughs> 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 you can be honest. Yes? <laughs> so next time I have to be a little similar to everybody here. Um, I'd like to welcome the guests. Anybody being new here? Hi. Uh, and uh, anybody that's joining us. Uh, after church today, we do have a Thanksgiving feast. Uh, I'm very excited about that. Last week we were in the book of Jude. And I intended to get done and through it, but I stopped at the doxology. So that's where we're going to start, but that's not where we're going to end. Um, we're going to end up in the Psalms, Psalm 46 for today. The message today is be still and know that I am God. How many know that scripture in 4610? That's probably one of the most popular scriptures that we quote as Christians. It's, it's on everything. We put it on plaques, we put it on coffee cups, pens, picture frames, everything. We, we put this on, we give it to everybody we know. And, it, and right so, it's, it's, a, it's a great scripture. But I want to start at the end of the, end of Jude, what he said in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The reason I wanted to go over this, this doxology is because there's a few things in there I didn't want us to miss. First off, the word, when it says keep you, when it says, now to him, him is referring to who? God. Now to him who is able to keep you. Keep you in the Greek is the word phulaso. And I love this. It, the meaning means, it's the idea of a race or a clan of people that have been set aside to be watched and guarded. That's the idea of that word. So when it says to him who is able to keep you, it's saying God is able to, you're his you're his people, you're his children, and he is going to set you aside for the purpose of watching and guarding you. That's absolutely. And then it says after that, with this, in the next verse, with the strength and wisdom from God, we should not fall. Think about it. Many times we try it on our own, right? We try to do things on our own, and we wonder why so many times we fall. Because it's God who keeps us. It's, and we got to stop sometimes relying on ourselves. Yes, we have certain things that we're supposed to do in our faith, but when we rely on our own strength to do things that we're going to be talking about, we need to rely on him. Remember, Adam, when he was in his complete state of innocence, fell, right? He fell. What about the angels that came down and defiled themselves with women? They were created in a perfect state, and they fell. But we... We, God's children, this verse, we are preserved by the grace of God. So think about it. So even us as sinful men, if we are relying on his strength, we can't fall. We can't fall. But when we rely on our own strength, we will fall. That's what he's, that's what he's implying there. Um, because it's God that keeps us from falling. And also remember, it says that he presents himself presents us to himself. You ever 
think about that. It says in that verse, present you blameless before the presence of his glory. So not only does he set us aside and protect us, he also is going to present us to himself blameless. Blameless. When we look at ourselves through our eyes, we don't see blameless. We don't see perfection. We don't see set aside. We don't see glorified. We see, what do we see? A mess, right? Yeah, broken. But God, in this verse, is reminding you that through his eyes, he sees us blameless. And that's what he wants us to rest in. But notice it says he presents us blameless with great joy. Great joy. And I want to give you that word in the Greek. That's agalieas. And it literally means to jump for joy. So he presents us blameless before him. And he is so excited to present us to himself that he jumps for joy. That's amazing. Then it says to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord Jesus Christ, who is truly God. <clears throat> Not excluding the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but this whole next part of the verse is, is attributing everything to Jesus Christ. Notice he is the God of all wisdom. Notice he is the God of all the natural, the God of all the spiritual. He is the only Savior of his people, right? He's the only Savior of his people. And everything that comes next can be ascribed to him. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. All of this is ascribed to Jesus. Glory, glory. Speaks of his deity. Speaks of his divine sonship. It speaks of the mediational work that he does for us. It speaks of salvation. Majesty. Well, I have to describe that word. That describes God as he is. It belongs only to him. And I think sometimes we cheapen that word because we don't use it anymore, right? We don't have kings and queens in the United States. We don't run around going, oh, your majesty. And so we don't use that word, so we cheapen it. But in scripture, majesty, it, it belongs to God. It also belongs to him in his human nature because he'll be crowned king. When he returns to take over. And then I love dominion. That's speaking of his dominion over both the natural and the spiritual. The creation and the spiritual side. And then authority. This is the best part of this verse. And authority. Upholding all things. All things. In redeeming his people. Right? In protecting and defending his people. And destroying his enemies, raising the dead, judging the world. This is the only God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom all of that is attributed. All of it. And in the ending, both now and forever. That means it's in this present life. And in the next life, too, in the eternal life. That little doxology shows where he's focused on us. 
shows where our focus should be. Hence the reason I chose this psalm, Psalm 46. Because Psalm 46 is powerful. And it's going to continue with Jude's doxology right into this. Because Jude is trying to get us to see. that. Remember all the stuff he told us in that book? All of this stuff that's that, you know, this false doctrine and how we can fall into it and how men will come in and they're going to creep in and they're going to try to separate the church. He told us all this stuff. And then at the end he says, but, but, God, I love that, but God, who has all authority, which means lean on him and you will not fall. I think we forget that sometimes. Turn to Psalm 46. I always say this, if you have the app, you've got to find the one that you can turn the page in the app. Again. Psalm 46. We're going we're gonna to read through it first, and then I'm going to go back down through it. Psalm 46, verse 1. Of the sons of Korah, according to Amon, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very help, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose stream make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her. When morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Everybody knows this verse. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When most people get done reading chapter 46, the only thing they usually remember is verse 10. That's it. You don't see the rest of those scriptures on coffee cups. You don't see the out of coffee cup scripture, the Lord makes all wars cease. They don't put it on it. They remember verse 10. And in fact, it's probably, I bet you, if I took a poll, there's so, I bet you a lot of you already have it underlined in your Bible. And if you don't, it's probably got highlighted or colored. Uh, it's probably one of the most favorite verses for Christians. But it, for a reason, it gives comfort to our hearts, right? It comforts us. There's a good reason for it. It's also good for giving comfort to someone else. In fact, there are many, many things. I just, while I was studying this, I just went on shopping, and I put in Psalms 46.10, went on shopping. And there are, you can't believe what stuff, I mean, this is on everything. Everything you can think of. Signs, plaques, pens, coffee cups, hunting stands, clothing, stickers, you name it, that verse is on it. And I get it. I do get it. It's an incredible verse. I get it. I love that verse. But it's incredible because it's spoken in 
in this psalm is the only part of the psalm that's spoken directly from the Lord. Directly is the only part. The rest of it is the psalmist writing it. This quote comes directly from the Lord. And it's interesting how the psalmist, when it moves along its way, and he's going through all this stuff, and he talks, and then suddenly, you hear the Lord speaking in first person right there in verse 10. That's impressive. There's a reason for that, but we're going to look at that. But be still and know that I am God. How many hold on to that? How many actually, truthfully hold on to that? You don't have to raise your hand sometimes. You don't have to throw yourself out there. But how many, how many really hold on to that? And I'm willing to say, not in here, but as I look out in the world and we see what's going on, Christians are not being still and know that he's God. They're not. They're, they're doing what Jude at the end said, don't do. Don't try it on your own. Lean on God. We like to think that we have the plan, right? We know what's going on. I like it. We hear all the time. Well, that's God's will. I know it is. How do you know? We're going to find out. Be still and know that I am God. You know, I said, you know, we love that verse. But we need that verse, to be honest. We need that verse. I need that verse. I need it probably every day sometimes. Because I'll do the same thing. I try to figure it out on my own. And then i got to sit back and just be still and know he is God. But I want to say this. Lest we take that single verse out of the rest of the scripture, do we really know what he's saying? I want you to look, we want to look at the context of this song, of this verse according to the rest of the psalm. It's going to blow your mind. I think it'll give us a better understanding of why here the Lord made this statement. In the middle of that whole song, at the very end, the Lord makes that statement. And looking at it in context, you know, why is he saying, why is he telling us, be still and know that I am God? Why? Look at verse 1 again. What was that? Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, in this verse, there's no words that are unfamiliar to any of us. I don't have to break down any language on this. Refuge, strength, we know what they mean, right? We all know what refuge means. It means we hide in him, and strength means we get our strength. These words are constant, actually, throughout the entire psalm. The words refuge and strength, all throughout the book of Psalms, is a constant usage of those words. And it's a, and it has to do when the writers speak of the constant presence in the midst of his people. The whole Psalms is about that. The presence of God constantly in the midst of his people. But I like the sound, I like the second part really in this verse. A very present help in trouble. That is an awesome, who's my favorite word? That is an awesome God word for any time I use it. That is an awesome, awesome, awesome phrase. Because it, it calls God in your life and in my life saying that his help is very, very present. 
It's actually kind of a strange phrase to be said. I mean, we don't usually say to someone when we're talking to them, well, John, he's very present with us today, do we? I don't look at you and say, oh, you're very present today. Some of us are very absent sometimes. <laughs> but the psalmist is kind of trying to give us emphasis on the presence of the Lord here when he speaks this by saying is a very present help. Just as a reminder, and I, I, I know you all know this, but the word present here means in the language here, it means close to, next to, beside. That's what it means in the scripture here. That's why when describing God, how many know when we describe God, we had a prefix to that. What's the prefix we use? Anybody know? Omni. Don't we say God is omnipresent? That's why through the time and through the theology, that's why they added it right there. That's why they added omni. We put it in front of the word, we say he's omnipresent, which means he is everywhere present. Everywhere. The prefix omni gives any word you apply to it a universal characteristic. You and I can be present, but we can't be omnipresent. None of us can. None of us. God is always, always, everywhere present. Just wrap your head around that for a minute. He is always, everywhere present. <coughs> Those words and that understanding is one of the most incredible comforts we can get from God. Those words right there and understanding what it said. You would not need any other comfort. To know the God of the universe, the God of creation, the sovereign God is always present everywhere. I want to give you a quote from A.W. Tozer. I read one of his books one time called The Knowledge of the Whole. Very good book. I'm going to read what he actually said. The doctrine of divine omnipresence personalizes man's relation to the universe in which he finds himself. God is present, near, next to him, and this God sees him and knows him through and through. At this point, faith really begins. And while it may go on to include the thousand other wonderful truths, these all refer back to the truth that God is and God is always present. In other words, the omnipresence of God is the, is, is the every other truth is a reflection of that truth. Every other truth, I want you to think about this, Every other truth given to us in the Bible is a reflection of that truth. Why, were we, why was salvation offered to us? Because God is very present everywhere. And he, what does he say? He is a help in all things. Hmm. Here's what's interesting. I think I think if we Christians took a theology quiz and I asked you, true or false, is God omnipresent? What would we answer? I think we would all say true, right? Most of us would say that. Most of us would say, yeah, God's everywhere. He is. 
He's everywhere. Because we're taught that. But what's intriguing about that is how quickly we abandon that. That's what's intriguing. Every one of us will say, oh, God's everywhere. But we will quickly abandon that when life gets hard. We do. It's like we run from it. It's like we're afraid of that truth when life gets hard. We, we just turn from that truth and we forget it. How quickly we can move off that concept. How quickly I, right here, I can move off that concept. I've done it. We, I get people asking me questions or even me. They're, they're always saying, where's God in this? Or I don't, I don't feel very, I don't feel God's presence near me in this. I, I think God's left me. That simple statement, I don't feel God's presence. First off, as if our feelings are at all reliable. Really, I mean, come on. That's, I mean, really. Especially on this topic, we can't rely on our feelings. And herein lies the problem with us. Remember, I always say there's always a problem, right? There's always a problem. We as humans, we think our feelings are the end-all, say-all. We do. We think what we feel, that's it. That's the truth. That's our entire theology sometimes. I've heard people, Christians, you know, I'm just not going anywhere. I just, I just don't feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's the end-all, say-all for them right there. That, that feeling, that emotion. God's word comes along to is everywhere present, then we go, eh, I don't feel it. I don't feel it. You know what? That's like casting doubt in God's word. It is. Think about it. God tells you in his word, not the psalmist, the Lord speaks in first person and says, I'm everywhere. And we're like, so we are actually doubting what he told us. We are literally saying, you said it, God, but I'm not so sure about it. Crazy. It's crazy. But that's us. That's me. That's all of us. Thank goodness there is grace, right? Amen. But it's all of us. But see, this, this psalmist in here wants us to understand that he is everywhere. Because when we grasp this, Don't falter in your faith, in your walk, in your prayer life, in your strength. You don't falter at all. You don't become like the what I call the you know we talk about it all the time the roller coaster Christian. It's like they're on a ride at Kennywood Park, up and down, up and down, up and down because they doubted the primary truth that God is everywhere. And if you doubt that. When life becomes a challenge to us, to me, to you, we quickly, quickly will blame God for not being present. We will very quickly do that. And this sermon is not a negative sermon. I just want to get this point across to you. That when, when life gets hard, we, we quickly abandon that. And, and we rarely ever stop to consider the possibility 
that we might have something to do with that equation. We, we rarely will stop and do that because, well, you know what? I don't feel God's presence. Maybe it's my fault. We won't do that. There may be something in our lives that's given itself to us in a sense of, of even a feeling of God not being present. Okay, Something happens in our life. Something traumatic, something devastating happens in our life, and we that feeling will come that you don't feel like God's there. But what the psalmist is trying to tell us is feelings don't matter. How many times in Scripture was it feelings are fleeting? He says, don't go on your feelings. Go on the truth and knowledge that now even though you're going through this, God is standing right there. Now, he's going to expand that thought as we get to some things. I want to look at an example, though, in Jeremiah. You don't have to turn. I'll read it to you. In Jeremiah 29, verse 13, he says this. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you back from all nations and all places where I have driven you. I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. While that is speaking of the nation of Israel, it's also speaking to us. This is a promise in God's word. He says, if you seek me with all your heart, guess what? You'll find me. No questions asked. No ifs, no ands, no buts. He says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. But notice that wonderful promise has a requirement. It's got a requirement. Guess what it is? Something on our part. We must seek him. Ready? With all of our hearts. It's not like, oh, hey, I'm looking for God. Hello, God. How you doing? No, no. It's with all our hearts. All of it. The idea here is pressing in to him. To press in with all you have. He says, not in the sense that he's hiding now. That's not what I want you to do. Not in the sense that God's hiding. He ain't hiding. What he's saying is, if you seek me, if you press into me in the midst of trouble, if you press to me, you will find me. You will find me. You know, you and I tend to look for God in physical ways, right? We do. We, people have said to me before, they've said, I just want to hear God's voice. And they're literally spot talking about their, their physical ears. I want to hear God's voice. And I'm not saying God does not speak to us. Somebody's going to quote, somebody's going to unquote me on that. But they we tend to look for God with our physical ears. And here's what, I, as I was studying this, if you're looking, if you're listening for God with your physical ears, you're listening the wrong way. You are listening the wrong way. Because you are not truly seeking him in the way he wants to be sought. Scripture says what? God is spirit, right? God is spirit. So, he wants to communicate spiritually with us. He does. He wants to communicate. What I mean by that, let me, let me tell you something about spiritual communication. How many have felt something that God has spoken on the heart? How powerful was it? How like you could, the funny thing is, you didn't physically hear it, but you could sure speak it out, couldn't you? Spiritual communication 
is vastly greater than any physical ear communication we could ever get. When God lays something for anyone who's had that happen, when God has spoken to them and laid it on their heart, it is the most moving, powerful, you can't deny it. I don't care if you're trying to run from it, you can't. So what it's saying is, if you're listening, if you're like in the midst of trouble, and you're like, I need to hear God's voice with my ear, you're listening incorrectly. And that's what, this, that's what he's saying. You need to be pressing into God, pressing into him. And when you do that, he promises, promises, you will find him. That's so powerful. When you listen spiritually, God has the ability to drop volumes information in our lives. And we might not, like I said, we might not even hear it, but we sure will, after we get it dropped on us, we have the ability to go out and tell everybody about it. It's crazy. We're like, I didn't hear nothing with my ears, but I felt God speak to my spirit, and I can tell you everything he said. That's what it's talking about. If you're, if you're waiting, if you're waiting, waiting for God to touch you in some sort of physical way, how many have said, now, I've heard this, I just want God to appear in my bedroom. No. <laughs> Had somebody said that. I'm like, no, you don't. Because uh, when the, this has happened to a few people in scripture, and what happened when God appeared to them? It says they fell down as dead, right? They were like, whoa. People were like, I don't want God to appear in my bedroom. I'm like, no, you don't. Change your thinking there. You know, Daniel could not even breathe when he was in the presence of God's glory. He couldn't even breathe. And you want that in your bedroom? If we're always looking for God physically, I'm not saying God doesn't manifest things. I'm not saying that. But in the context of the troubles and being a very help, Scripture is telling us to press in. Stop using your physical senses. Press in and let God speak to your spirit. And when you do that, you will find him. Spiritually, God wants to minister to us. He wants to move us. When he says, seek me with all your heart, that's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. Verse 2. I could go on that verse forever, but I won't. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Kind of sound like a natural disaster when I read that. Like, that's what it sounds like. And, uh, I mean, if that's, if, if you took verse two literally, then God, God, the, the psalmist is saying, God is ever present in a time of trouble, even if the world's flying apart. I like that. God is very present in a time of trouble, even if the world is completely imploding. Now, it's very possible, though, because the psalms are very whole writing is very poetic. It's very possible that the psalmist wasn't actually talking about a natural disaster. I mean, I won't doubt, though. I don't doubt it. I mean, it could have been in his mind when he wrote this. It could have been. Or he could have been thinking symbolically. And I think he was probably thinking of where all the things that were going on. I think he probably was thinking symbolically. What he was talking about was the worst disaster you've ever had in your life. Your life. Not the world. But he's talking about the worst trouble and tragedy you've ever had in your personal life. 
where everything seems, have you ever had this, where everything seems like it's just coming unhinged? No matter what happens, no matter what you do, everything is falling apart. And in that time, whether literal or symbolic, the psalmist says, what did he say? God is there. God is there. He is ever-present, a very help, ever-present. Verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. I want to stop there for a minute. It says here that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Who's this, what's the city of God? Jerusalem. I'll give that to you. Jerusalem. Um, there is no river that flows through the city of Jerusalem. How many of you know? Yeah, there's no river that flows through the city of Jerusalem. So, and it says here, the streams that flow from that river make glad the city of God. So, the psalmist is actually talking about something that doesn't exist. Because there's no river in Jerusalem. I mean, during the time when Hezekiah was king, you, you remember this Old Testament, and they thought they were going to be attacked and being held by sea, and they were going to be held under siege. And we know back then when, when they wanted to siege an enemy, they would come out and they would surround the town or the city or the, or the country. They would surround it and they would sit there and eventually they would starve you and thirst you out and you would have to give up. So back when Hezekiah was king and he believed that the Syrian army was on their way to do this to he, uh, he kind of did something pretty smart. How many remember reading this? He, there was this, there were streams on the outside of the river. There's none in there. So before they came, Hezekiah diverted one of the streams so it ran into Israel. And the reason he did that is, if they would have taken siege of Israel at that time, they could last longer because they had water coming into the city. But the, the actual language there, when it, 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 when it describes the stream, believe me, it's not a river. It's not even close to a river. It would be what we would consider if I had a garden hose running some water. That's kind of the idea of what he ran in there. Which would have been enough to give them water to survive a siege. But it's not a river. So what's interesting in this verse is this is a, a, this is a prophetic vision that he's given us. It's really cool. It's a foresight by the psalmist of another river. Another river he's talking about. Which we are told elsewhere in scripture prophetically about. And how many have been here on a revelation study? And there have been who getting deep on a revelation study. The river he's talking about, in fact, is the river of life. Here. It's the river of life. And the apostle John saw this river. In Revelation. Chapter 22, I'll read it to you. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So the river of life, it, it, it's even running through the street of the city now when you see it. I want you to get this. So the river of life is something that is going to happen, and it wasn't something that had happened. So... He's seeing a future hope. What The reason I bring this up is we're going to read the next couple verses and it's going to see why I brought that up. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the 
earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. So what is all of this talking about? It is saying to us that God is sovereign and controls the armies, the conquests, nations that rise to power, nations that fall from power, the falling of nations, all of it, all of those things, he's sovereign. The psalmist wants you and I, right here, to look at human history, look back on our human history, and see how God has intervened in your life. How many here say to themselves, and I've done it, you look back on your life and you're like, I absolutely see where God intervened. But when we're in it, we don't see that. The psalmist is trying to get us to stop. In the midst of all of your struggle or hardships, look back and see where God intervened. Why? Because he doesn't want us to doubt that he's going to intervene now. So, how God is responding to the needs of man, and in keeping with his purpose and his will, he orchestrates all things. So we've learned God is very present, always present everywhere, and now the, the psalmist is reminding us, not only is he ever present, he is also sovereign, which means everything that happens, guess what? He's sovereign. And that's what this verse is talking about. It calls us to notice. What I think it says, it calls us to notice and acknowledge. You guys remember in the Proverbs, there's a verse that we're told to, uh, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And it says, at the end of that verse, to acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways. Well, acknowledging the Lord is a huge thing. It's huge. We, we hear that word and we're like, oh, I acknowledge the Lord. I acknowledge him. But it's huge. It's, it's a, you can acknowledge the Lord in your life. And you can acknowledge the Lord in history. Okay? And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's acknowledging the Lord in his life. And he's also acknowledging the Lord in the history of his life. To acknowledge the Lord in life or anything like that, is to say God is working in my life. And God is working in my life. And you know that terrible thing that just happened to me in my life? God is working. Even if it's a really terrible, tough season in my life, God is working in my life. Amen. Even if the Lord has allowed something that I don't even completely understand, God is working in my life. Amen. That is acknowledging the Lord. That's acknowledging the Lord. As humans, 
<laughs> when we go through something, we don't say God is working. We say, why? What? How? How could this happen? We don't acknowledge that God is sovereign. So the psalmist is reminding us he's ever-present, he's a very help in trouble, and he's sovereign. He's sovereign. When we look at the world today, and we see the rising and the falling of many things going on, or if you look back through the course of history in the human life, we could say, well, you know, you remember World War One, World War II, and then the Nazis took over, and then, you know, and the Nazis rose to power, and then, you know, had some bad things go on, then the Nazis fell from power, and because of all these nations, things... Or we could simply say, God was working. God was working. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? That's a hard pill to swallow. To look back at some of the most terrible things in history and say, God was working. God conquest of nations. And that's what the psalmist wants us to He wants you to take, he wants you to have a worldview and see that the sovereign God is the ruler of all man. All man. And he invites you to acknowledge it. That, that's, that's the key to acknowledge it. To look at your own life, my own life, even in the midst of the most worst thing you can ever imagine going through, and acknowledging God is working. That's hard to say in troubled times, isn't it? That's, I'll, I'll admit it, that's hard to say. To understand that even though this is happening, He is sovereign. People don't like to say, well, God doesn't use evil. God does not use evil. I'll make that clear. But what's evil to you is not always evil in God's eyes. We like to say, well, the suffering or something we're going through, well, I don't know, you know, the fall of the world. Sometimes it is. Sometimes things we go through in our life is because the earth is broken. But the psalmist wants us to realize God is sovereign. And let me say, you're his child, right? And you, he loves you, right? And he says in the beginning that he separates you so he can watch you and guard you. Then why, in the middle of suffering, do we doubt? Because we don't understand. We don't hold to the truth. He is sovereign. Sovereign. Why am I making such a big deal of all that? Because the con that's the context of verse 10. That is the whole context of verse 10. Understanding as you do now that God is sovereign over the kingdoms of man. That this word right here goes out to the kingdoms of man. 
All right? Those that are against the Lord, his enemies, and those that are with the Lord and his children. He speaks that to both. That's the context. Be still and know that I am God. He says that to his enemies. Just as much as he says that to his own people. So, we look at this verse on a nice little plaque, and it's a, you know, it's a nice sentiment that we give to Christians. Be still and know that I am God, right? It's a great thing. That's what we do. We, we use it. Be still and know God. But the context of that entire psalm is saying, God's not saying that just to you, loved one. He is saying it to everyone. Why is that important? He says to his enemies, be still and know that I am God, and I will not be mocked. My people will not be persecuted. My plan will be achieved. My will will come to pass. Tells his enemies, be still. In other words, to the enemies of God, be still means lay down your weapons, stop striving for it, quit putting everything you got into it, because I will be exalted. To the believer in Jesus, he says, be still, and that means rest in my presence. Rest in my presence. Know that I am God. Know that I am working. Know that I am capable. Know that I will be exalted. Man says through the, man says through the course of history, I will exalt myself. Right? right? That's what man does. I will exalt myself. But God says, well, temporarily. Temporarily. But in the end, be still and know I am God. I will be exalted. It's, it's like what the Lord said to Isaiah in chapter 2, verse 22. I haven't read that verse, but we go back and read it. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? That's God speaking. Stop regarding man whose, whose you know, nostrils is breath. saying to him, me, I am God, I will be exalted, my will, my plan, my sovereign purposes will be done. Now, look at the world today. How many Christians holding on to that truth? And how many Christians hold on when something goes against what they thought should happen, and I'm not talking about one thing, I'm talking about a bunch of things. <laughs> but when something goes against what we thought should happen, we forget that God will be exalted and he is sovereign over the rise and over the fall of everything, even our own lives. When we face something so horrible, and we've all been through things, and maybe some of us are going through things right now, the comfort 
from this verse comes to the fact knowing that he is always present. He is always there. He's a very help, and he is sovereign. That is Lord, we ask all these things. 